God, this has been a glorious morning. We're grateful for the opportunity of coming here and worshiping you. Grateful for the children. Grateful for the fact that they're not just the church of the future. They are the church of today. And we celebrate that. And I thank you for the parents who are here. And God, I pray now that in these moments that you would speak to us. Not because I've got any great word to say, but we know you do. That comes from your word, the Bible. So I pray that you would speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. There are three C's which somehow seem to play an important part in the way that we live, both as individuals and as a culture. The first C is comparison. Think of the numbers of times a day that you are comparing yourself to someone else. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's that young, handsome, or beautiful actor or actress in the advertisement, and as you look at them, you think, oh, I guess I'm not quite like that anymore, or never was. Or maybe it's the house you live in, or the car that you drive, and you compare it with others that you hang out with, and the list goes on and on. Comparison. The next one is competition. Frankly, as an old athlete, I love competition. And it plays an important part in several areas of our lives, whether in healthy or unhealthy ways. While our system of capitalism is built on healthy competition, it becomes unhealthy when our desire to gain a competitive edge causes us to be unethical or to lose our moral compass. When we try to compete with the possessions of the people in our neighborhood to the point that maybe we're in over our heads in debt, we've lost our perspective. Competition. The third C is control. We desperately want to control the lives of those we love, to shield them from harm or to manipulate them to accomplish our purposes. In a world filled with uncertainty and change, we deeply desire to control our futures, whether we're talking about employment, finances, or health. Control. Let me illustrate what I mean with these three C's by sharing a story about an anonymous phone call. You've got to watch out when you receive anonymous phone calls, but it was an anonymous phone call that took place when I was a young pastor, not long at a church, the first church that I served after I was ordained. As I was there in that church, I was alongside of a, a pastor who had been there for many years. He was completely different than me. I mean, we were about as different as you could be. He was a person who was a social activist, a political activist. He was a lot farther left on the political philosophical spectrum than I was. He'd been thrown in jail in Mississippi for trespassing on public property while trying to enlist blacks to register to vote. The caller, who would not give her name, asked if I might preach every Sunday instead of just once a month in the first service and let the senior pastor preach in the second service. And as she talked, she was comparing us and really trying to put us in a situation where we would compete with each other. And in so doing, she hoped that she could control the future of what would happen in that church. And what I believe to be a spirit-filled response toward the beginning of that conversation, I told her that my colleague and I met together at least weekly 
And every time we met together, we shared with each other and we prayed for each other. Anything she said, I'd have to share with him, of course. She was silent for a bit and kind of quieted down a little bit. And, and while she kept talking for quite some time after my clarification, she soon realized that she would not be able to drive the wedges of comparison or competition between us and that she could not control the future of the church. We worked together for several years, and that pastor and I wanted to become co-pastors. We went to the presbytery, and there was a long discussion, about an hour long, as to whether we should be working together as co-pastors. And I'll never forget, when we were going into the dinner line, we were several people behind a couple of guys who were talking loud enough so that I could hear them, and they said, you know what? Our presbytery really knows what to do with people who are in conflict, but we don't know how to handle people who love each other and want to work together. As we finish this series on basking in resurrection light, and we look at the end of John chapter 21, the setting again is the shore of Galilee after Jesus has forgiven, recommissioned, and called for a second time Peter. Somehow I think the three C's are very much at work in the impetuous, rough-hewn fisherman, Peter. If you would, follow along with me as I read from John chapter 21, and I'm going to be reading verses 20 through 24. Please follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one he had, who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. May God add his blessing, understanding, and application upon this, the reading of his word. In verses 20 and 21, Peter expresses a concern for young John, the disciple, the one who's writing the gospel. I picture Jesus and Peter standing up after being around the fire of coals, and they begin to walk along. And as they begin to walk along, young John follows behind them. And as he looks over his shoulder, Peter sees young John, who's probably still a teenager, by the way, after Jesus' betrayal, when the rest of the disciples had scattered, John had followed Jesus to the high priest's compound for the trumped-up trial. Furthermore, it was John who had followed Jesus even to the cross when none of the other disciples were there. John had not needed to have a second call. He was still on the journey. He was still following Jesus faithfully. 
Peter's concern for him could have come from several motives. At first blush, we might uh, say that Peter might be comparing himself to John as he asks, Lord, what about him? Peter hasn't followed as faithfully as John. John in his youth has an innocence and a purity about him, which could have been a little bit disarming for the rough-hewn big fisherman. Peter could have wished that he had that same kind of uninhibited passion that John had. Maybe there's an insecurity on Peter's part as he compares himself, the one who's supposed to be the shepherd, the leader, to young John. Or possibly, could it be that Peter was concerned about John's ability to take care of himself when the danger and the rigor of following Jesus might make life rather risky and treacherous? Would Peter have to watch out for John? Like maybe Peter, like, like Jesus had to watch out for John, maybe several times during the journey since he was probably in his mid-teens when he was first called. Peter seems to be one of those guys who wants to know as much as possible. The more information you have, the better you are equipped to face and even control the future. Would John be a co-shepherd of the early church with Peter? Would they be competing for the same position? Who would be the greatest? In a brotherly, almost paternal manner, maybe Peter might have been concerned about how John would die. Jesus had just predicted that Peter would die with his hands outstretched on a cross. And now maybe Peter is concerned about John. How will he meet his end? If so, how would he die? Would he die for Jesus? While comparison, competition, and control were all certainly a part of Peter's makeup, I guess I would give him credit for asking the question, Lord, what about him, in genuine concern for the future of the young disciple. When we go at the next two verses, verses 22 and 23, Jesus responds to Peter's question with, what is that to you? Regardless of why Peter asked about young John, Jesus responds very decisively. I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't want to respond quite that decisively. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. I'm afraid that I'm going to come on too strong. But Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. He meets him in a way that is going to be most helpful to him. If Peter is comparing himself to John in any way, Jesus is saying that he's heading down the wrong path. Whether his comparison is positive or negative, God has created John and Peter as unique individuals, each with a particular purpose, and they should not be compared. If the big, if the big fisherman is feeling competitive, concerned about future status, position, or prestige in Christ's kingdom, Jesus is letting him know that it is clearly out of bounds. God is the one who will make those determinations and not Peter. If in any way Peter wants to somehow control young John and his future, 
That's not his job. God is the one who has ultimate control and not Peter. While Peter may, like many of us, want to take charge, making things happen, God is in control of John, and he'll do just fine, thank you. Even as I surmised, thinking about his own death for Christ, Peter is compassionately concerned about John's future and possibly about John's martyrdom in a violent manner. But Peter needs to leave John's future well-being in God's hands. In life and in death, God will take care of John, and he'll use him as he chooses. If he's like Elijah and doesn't die until Jesus returns, Peter, what is that to you? Then in a very helpful way, Jesus moves Peter's attention from John to focusing again on himself. When Jesus says to Peter, you must follow me, he's saying, what happens to John is none of your business, Peter. It's my business. Peter's most important responsibility was to be faithful to the call to follow Jesus. It's as if he's saying, don't be concerned about him. You need to be concerned about yourself and your call. You leave John to me. I have a feeling that somehow these words, no matter how they were spoken, weren't very easy for Peter to hear. Yet, there had to be something liberating about him when you stop and think about it. I mean, he's going to be the great shepherd, and yet he doesn't have to control everyone's life, everyone's destiny. God's going to do that. It's interesting to note that because of Jesus' words here, a rumor spreads that John's not going to die, that he's going to live until Jesus returns again. Now, you must understand that many people in that day thought that Jesus would return any time. It could be a matter of days, or it could be a matter of months, or just a few years. They didn't understand that it would be more than 2,000 years and counting. These words at the end of John dispel that rumor. Some would say that they are an addendum written after John's death. But the young teenager who faithfully followed Jesus as he talked with Peter that day did outlive all of the other disciples who all met violent deaths at the hands of their oppressors. John would take Jesus' mother Mary, and he would take care of her just as he was instructed from the cross. He would take her to Ephesus, where he was the leader of the church there. Ephesus, a major city on the coast of what we now know as Turkey. John would go on to write not only this gospel, but three letters. And it's John who would be exiled to the island of Patmos. He would have a great dream from which came the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Unlike the other disciples, John would die a natural death. As I said last week, Peter would become the shepherd, the leader of the early church. And Saul, who would become Paul, would become the great missionary statesman and evangelist. But it was John's destiny to be the witness who would faithfully communicate the good news, pointing people to Jesus Christ, anyone who would listen. Several years ago, Alice and I 
met our daughter Becky, who was then a pastor in Spartanburg, South Carolina, in the beautiful city of Asheville, North Carolina. We were going to celebrate her 30th birthday by going to the Biltmore House, and then after that, doing their favorite sport, shopping. <laughs> we stayed in a nice hotel right on the main highway going off of the interstate into Asheville, right around the corner from the Biltmore. We were staying in a room with two queen-size beds. So in the morning, I did my usual thing. Before my girls woke up, I got up very quietly, dressed in the dark, and then started out for the bagel shop, which was right across the street. I can spot bagel shops and donut shops from a mile away. That's my job, because I'm the designated breakfast provider for my girls. As I walked out of the hotel into the sunlight, I kind of stopped for a moment. Everything was blurry. And I thought, uh-oh, maybe I had a stroke last night. Maybe I had some kind of neurological episode. I wonder what's happening. I hope it doesn't diminish our time with Becky. Hoping that it would clear up even though everything was blurry, I walked across four lanes of congested rush hour traffic. And as I walked into the shop, and looked at the menu which was up above, I realized I couldn't read it. I couldn't read any of those letters. I couldn't read any of the numbers of those delectable goodies. Oh, I thought, I'm so far away from home. What's going on here? Then I took off my glasses just to kind of rub my malfunctioning eyes, and as I did, I realized that I had Alice's glasses on. <laughs> I could see better without them. So, not as to look strange as I looked around, I put them back on and walked across that crowded, without buying anything, because I couldn't see the menu anyway, walked across that crowded highway, that blurry highway, and finally went up to the room. They were still sleeping and exchanged the glasses, and I was healed. <laughs> With that new outlook on life, I proudly then, confidently, walked across the busy highway once more, secured breakfast, walked back again. When I told them of my perilous tale, they chortled, and they said, you must have looked just like the cartoon character, Mr. Magoo. <laughs> and I got to tell you, at that moment, I can't say that I was as amused as they were. <laughs> the point I want to make this is this, though, my friends. The lens through which we view life as we follow Jesus is of the utmost importance. If we look at our lives through the lens of comparison, we are prone to look too highly or too lowly at ourselves. We can think that we are better than others and come across as being arrogant, forfeiting opportunities to point people to Jesus, the primary purpose that we've been called to follow in the first place. Likewise, when we're viewing life through the lens of comparison, we often think of others as better than ourselves. Oh, sisters and brothers, God made you like you are. He doesn't make junk. Thank you. It's an insult to God when you put yourself down, when you don't think you're as good as someone else. We're following the subtle ploy of the evil one when we look at life through the lens of comparison. 
Each one of us is uniquely created, gifted, and called by God for a purpose. We don't have to compare ourselves with anyone else and the whole world. Similarly, when we look through, when we look and view life through the lens of competition, we are also making a mistake. In God's scheme of things, we don't have to compete with others for God's attention or rewards. God deals with each one of us as individuals. He calls each one of us to a particular purpose. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us less and nothing that we can do to make God love us more. We are each responsible for our own faithfulness to the God who created us and called us. And you and I don't have to compete with anyone else to win God's acceptance and love. It's also important to note that we must not view life and view others through the lens of control. We were never given the task of controlling the outcomes of events or the lives of those around us. When we attempt to control situations and events, in essence, we're trying to play God, a role that you and I are not ever going to be successful at filling. There are so many things in this life that you and I can't control, completely out of our control. That's part of God's intention as the master designer of all of life. We must let God be God. We must always be relinquishing the control of our lives to the God who loves us. And there's a real sense of freedom when we submit ourselves to the God and don't feel that we have to control others. My dear friends, I believe that God wants us to say again. He wants to say to us again, as he did to Peter, Peter, follow me. As we look around at others and see others who we have different feelings about, we try to think of words to describe what that looks like. As we do, my mind goes to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, maybe words that many of you have uh, memorized. It's the analogy of an Olympic race. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off anything that hinders the sin, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The key is fixing our eyes on Jesus and not on comparison or competition or control. Whenever I read these verses, my mind goes back to my senior year in high school. I'm standing next to a track where an important race is going to take place. It's the final heat for the high hurdles, and all of the runners are trying to qualify for the state finals. My friend, Rod, was one of, those, was, was one of the best natural athletes I've ever met. We both participated together in four sports a year, which you could do in a small high school. As a freshman, in December, 
a TV station from Kalamazoo designated Rod as the player of the week for basketball in all of southwestern Michigan. He was a starting quarterback as a freshman. He was a shortstop, a pitcher in baseball. But his best sport by far was track. And that he was going to get a college scholarship was almost certain. He went to state in both the high and the low hurdles as well as the long jump his freshman year. I'll never forget a cool, crisp October evening in a football game, and I was on the field, and I heard uh, that horrible sound when his knee was completely dislocated. Didn't have the kind of orthopedic treatment we have today, and it took him a long time to rehab. He couldn't compete in the hurdles, both his sophomore and junior years, so he ran the quarter mile and went to state in that. Finally, his senior year, he was back to the hurdles again, and he was running one of the best times in the state. This is where we came in. He had won his preliminary heat in the high hurdles with the best time of anyone of the day. The starter's gun went off. He shot out. He was in the lead ahead of all the other hurdlers by a good distance. But instead of keeping his eyes fixed on the top of the next hurdle and the finish line, just for a second, he turned. It was just a split second and looked around to see who was in second place. And when he did that, he lost his concentration, hit the next hurdle, fell down in a bloody heap on the then cinder track, and he also took out the person in second place, all because he didn't keep his eye on the goal. Oh, dear friends, that's exactly what I believe Peter was doing when he looked back at John and said, what about him? How about you? Are you looking at your life and the people of your life through the lens of comparison or competition or control? If so, hear Jesus say to you today, what is that to you? You must follow me. If you're struggling with comparison, competition, or control, I would challenge you to honestly take that struggle to God And in a way, uniquely you, God wants to use you to accomplish his purpose in the world that he's given you, just like he did with Peter and John. If you'd like to discuss your situation or you'd like to pray with someone afterwards, there will be members of our leadership team over here at the alcove by the cross after the service. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, thank you for the example of Peter, even though we're not sure exactly what his motivations were, we're grateful for the question which causes us to think and ponder our own lives. Help us hear today from you, whatever our situation might be, you must follow me. Help us to recommit ourselves in a new and a fresh way to you, O oh, awesome God who came to our world in Jesus. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.